Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Oh, you guys hear that? That's the, that's the sound of my new ASMR podcast. <laughs> I'm joking. Hi, welcome back to the Long May She Rain podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. I hope everyone is doing good this week. Um, I did not sleep last night. I am actually very, uh, oh, what's the word? Insomniated? No, that's not the word. There's probably a word for it. I probably slept maybe four hours last night, so I am filling myself up on uh, caffeine so I don't die. Um, Other than that, my week has been pretty boring. I hope everyone else's week uh, was good. So guess what? It's Pride Month, which means I'm going to be talking about LGBT women. And uh, the first woman we we're going to be talking about today is Miss Josephine Baker. Now, you probably know her best for being a French entertainer uh, who happened to dress very scandalously for the 1920s. Now, I I didn't really know much about Josephine uh, when I went to uh, study her for this episode. I think the only th- time I had ever learned about her was on this TV show that I used to really love that got canceled, unfortunately called uh, Timeless. And uh, it had some really interesting information about her, and I actually had no idea that she was a part of the LGBT community a lot. Uh, sorry, at all. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised that she uh, was bisexual. So I'm really excited to be uh, covering her today, and I hope you guys are excited too. Let's get into it. Okay, uh, side note before we start this, I, I'd actually planned to do Josephine Baker, like, weeks and weeks before, uh, all the riots started happening, and, uh, I'm, I was, like, realizing as I started researching her this week that a lot of the stuff in her life kinda, um, fits pretty perfectly with the times we're going through now, so this is gonna be an interesting episode. Anyway, uh, Josephine Baker was born on June 3rd, uh, 1906, and actually her birth name was uh, Frida, like a German name, Frida Josephine McDonald, and she was born in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Now, now that we actually have a birthday for someone, we've gone a couple of episodes without knowing any birthdays for our our topics, Uh, let's talk about her astrological sign, because you guys know me and my astrological signs. Now, uh, June 3rd, which obviously recently uh, passed, um, makes her a Gemini. Now, I love Geminis. My best friend is a Gemini. And uh, I- I'm a Libra, <laughs> and Geminis and Libras tend to get along very well, so I feel like me and Josephine would vibe. So, uh, Gemini's personalities are very fun, but like every sign, Geminis have weakness- weaknesses. Their strengths are that they're adaptable, outgoing, and intelligent, and there's never a dull moment with a Gemini. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's true. <laughs> there's never a dull moment with my best friend. Alright, so... Uh, Josephine's mom, uh, was a lady named Carrie McDonald. Uh, now Carrie, um, had been adopted as a young girl, uh, 
by these two ex-slaves who were actually both of uh, black and Native American descent. And that's how uh, Josephine's mom grew up. Now, what's interesting about Josephine's birth is, like, how well documented it is. And also the identity of her father. Now, usually when you Google Josephine, her father will come up as this uh, guy named Eddie Carson, who I believe was a drummer in a band. And uh, this guy claimed to be her father, and he played along and played along with Josephine, saying that uh, he was her father. Uh, but Josephine never talked about it to the day she died. Uh, but Josephine's uh, son actually did some digging, and here's what he found about Josephine's birth and the identity of her father. Now, Josephine's mother, Carrie, became, like, pregnant sometime in, like, 1905, I believe. And uh, Carrie was actually um, admitted into an almost exclusively white hospital, which is so weird for the time period. Now, she stayed there from May 31st all the way up to June 17th. Um, now, what's strange about this not only being admitted into an all-white hospital is the fact that black women, normally because they couldn't afford to go to hospitals, would have their children at home with midwives. So it was so weird that she went to a hospital, and how on earth would she have been able to afford it is what's strange. So the theory is that uh, while, uh, Carrie was working for this, uh, white German family at some point, because I believe she was a domestic servant, um, she became pregnant, uh, I believe by one of the, the German family's, like, sons or something, and it's likely that Josephine's father was probably white and that family paid for, uh, Carrie and Josephine's stay in the hospital. Also, like I said, Josephine's first legal name was Frida, which is a German name, and I believe... I remember Googling it. I believe it means peaceful in German. So I definitely think that there could almost certainly be true. Now, even if that is true, uh, the dad didn't stick around because boy, oh boy, was Joe's early life really rough. Now, uh, she grew up in a very low-income neighborhood in downtown St. Louis. It was like... um, I believe she lived right near Union Station uh, downtown. I've never been to St. Louis, but... Sorry, drink. I've never been to St. Louis, but um, I looked at I looked it up on a map. <laughs> uh, now, this area that Joe grew up in was mostly filled with uh, brothels. <laughs> That's always fun to grow up next to. Uh, rooming houses, which are kind of like... Oh... They're kind of like, they're kind of like apartments. Not really. I, I don't remember what rooming house means. I'm sorry. They also had a lot of apartments downtown with no plumbing of any kind. Now, uh, this kind of reminds me a lot of the Madam C.J. Walker episode. Like I said, uh, this was a time when most black Americans didn't have plumbing of any kind. So this was pretty common. Now, Joe's mom actually did eventually get 
uh, married, uh, to this really nice dude. I think his name is Arthur. I didn't write it down. I'm sorry. And, uh, Joe got, uh, three more younger siblings. Now, Joe really liked her stepfather and he was a kind, sweet man, but the only problem was he didn't have a job. So they lived in poverty, kind of living paycheck to paycheck. Joe was almost always hungry as a kid and she dressed in rags for most of her childhood. And when she was a little kid, like very, very little kid, she took up a job as a washerwoman to help pay bills in her free time. And this was all before she was 10 years old. Can you imagine having to uh, help your mom pay bills when you're like six years old? Um, In Joe's free time, she played in the Union Street train yard, which, like I said, uh, she lived right next to. And it actually helped her develop some serious street smarts. Now, uh, because Joe had to help pay bills, at eight years old, her family actually sent her to live with a white woman so she could be a live-in servant. And this was actually pretty uh, common in the time period to uh, send kids away for work so that they could bring home the dough. Now, unfortunately, Joe was uh, severely abused by her white employers one time. I, I read this horrible story that uh, one time her employers burned her hands because she put too much soap in the laundry and like I said this was all before she was 10 they burned her hands for doing something wrong like how horrible is that now by the age of 12 Joe didn't really see the point in staying in school anymore so she sort of dropped out and uh ran away so it's likely that she was probably illiterate for most of her life uh she might have learned how to read and write later, or she might have been good at reading and writing already. We don't really know. Um, after that, she took many odd jobs, and she ended up working as a waitress at this club, and she did street dancing. Sorry, uh, for extra change. Um, Joe actually, she lived on the street during this time, because like I said, she ran away. Uh, she slept in uh, cardboard shelters and scavenged for food. Uh, and while she was actually waitressing, she met her first husband, a guy named Willie Wells. Now, I can't really tell you much about their marriage other than they got married when she was 13, and I definitely know that he was a lot older than her. Uh, their marriage was apparently very abusive, and I think they got divorced in, like, less than a year. Maybe less than that. It's, kids, never get married at 13, ever. It's dumb. You don't want to do it. (laughs) Anyway, that's how her first marriage, uh, ended. Now, after her divorce, um, Joe decided to do what all teenagers want to do. She ran away and she joined the circus, and by the circus, I mean she joined a street performance group. Uh, they were called the Jones Family Band, and she actually gained a lot of success with this band. And also, uh, while she was with these guys, uh, she met and married her second husband, who was named William Baker. Uh, in 1921, she was only 15. So, you know, only two years between marriages. She's 15, she's been married twice. Now, because she gained all the success with the Jones Band under the family name Baker, she kept it for the rest of her life, even when her and William Baker ended up divorcing in 1925. Uh, Baker landed a role in this uh, musical called Shuffle Along, and she was a part of the chorus group. And uh, she became really popular because she had this comedic touch that made her uh, really successful with audiences. Now, uh, Joe has these, like, 
you can see in pictures of her, she has these really big expressive eyes and people love that about her. Now, she wanted to seize her popularity, so in 1924, she moved to New York City, and that I believe that's when she separated her separated from her husband, so that was quick. Uh, like I said, they got divorced in 1925. Now, when she moved to New York City, they were right in the middle of this little thing called the Harlem Renaissance. Now, if you remember the Harlem Renaissance, we talked a bit about it in the Madam C.J. Walker episode. Now, uh, Joe performed as a chorus girl in uh, Harlem clubs, and she was a very renowned, talented dancer. Sorry, burp again. <laughs> she also uh, participated uh, in blackface comedies, which is not great. Blackface is horrible. Don't do it. Don't like anyone who does it. And her mother, uh, who Joe was actually still in contact with, uh, severely disappointed approved of Joe becoming her performer. Um, while she was in uh, New York uh, landing all these opportunities, she actually got the opportunity to tour in France, which was a really big deal as like it would define her life and France would literally become her home away from home. Now in New York, even though she was getting a lot of opportunities, she was also getting rejected for a lot of things because she was black. Even though she had this obvious talent, a lot of clubs would refuse to book her because she was black. See, the thing about the Harlem Renaissance is that it was one of the first times that white people really wanted to enjoy black culture, but with no black people in it. Like, I read a whole bunch of stuff about the Harlem Renaissance, where, uh, because of the success of clubs in Harlem, uh, white people decided to build their own clubs just like the ones in Harlem, but no black people but the performers would be let in. Stuff like that. So, that's awful. Now, uh, Joe's love of France. Now, like I said, Josephine, she kept a serious love of France her whole life, and it started with her 1925 tour to Paris. Now, France was a very interesting place in the 20s. France was absolutely obsessed with American jazz and pretty much anything exotic, because, you know, it's Europe. Now, Josephine traveled to Paris to perform in the show in French that I'm not going to pronounce correctly, La Revenue Negre at the Theatre de Champs-Élysées. Uh, I did not pronounce. I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm going to be taking a French class. God, I really need to brush up on my French. Um, <laughs> uh, Joe actually made an immediate impression on French audiences. Uh, with her dance partner, uh, Joe Alex, uh, she performed the Danse Sauvage, uh, in which she only wore a feather skirt. Oh, scandalous. And her career skyrocketed more than it ever had in the United States. And she became absolutely infamous, uh, in a performance called La Folie du Jour, uh, where Joe danced, wearing little more than a skirt made out of 16 bananas, which was really super duper scandalous for the 20s. I mean, women were showing their ankles in the 20s. It was absolute blasphemy. And you can see the picture of her wearing the banana skirt in the thumbnail for this episode if you want to look at it. 
Now, Joe's shows were wildly popular with Parisian audiences, and Joe became the most popular and highest paid performer in Europe. Now, she had the admiration of tons of cultural figures. Uh, Pablo Picasso loved her. Ernest Hemingway uh, talked about her all the time. And she got a whole bunch of lovely nicknames like Black Venus and Black Pearl. And apparently, she received more than 1,000 marriage proposals when she started to skyrocket in Europe. Now, she ended up loving France so much that she ended up breaking her contract with the show that she had been on tour with in the first place, and she began to perform in France solo. Uh, While she was in France, she actually began to do a bit of film work uh, because, you know, it was the 20s. The movie industry was kind of kicking off with, like, silent films and uh, shit like that. Um, Her movies did absolutely fantastic in Europe. Like, they were hits, but they bombed in America, uh, which was one of the reasons why Joe decided to start working in Europe. Because, like I said, American audience didn't like her, and they wanted to see white performers, not her. Uh, I read a couple of reviews um, about Joe from her performances and her stuff in movies. Uh, I wrote them down, but uh, reading them now, I am not going to repeat certain words that they used uh, to describe her. Some of them start with N. Uh, one of the things they did call her, they said she was too thin and she was dwarf-like. And that she would never be able to fill up a, uh, amphitheater. Um, and all of this backlash from America probably, no, it almost definitely contributed to her eventually becoming a legal citizen of France and giving up her American citizenship. Now, in the 1930s, she ended up getting this uh, new manager called uh, Giuseppe Pepito. No, Pepito Abenito, who eventually became her lover at one point because, of course, uh, he actually helped develop her singing voice and really tried to sell sell her brand. Um, apparently, they made dolls of her banana-skirted self, and they sold by the thousands. They were apparently a really popular toy. And she was uh, the muse to celebrated courtier Paul oh, Poirot, and uh, she was also photographed by master fashion photographer. His name is George. I can't pronounce that last name. God, I really need to work on my pronunciations. I am so sorry, guys. And postcards of her likeness were in super duper popular in Europe. I just kind of want to take a pause on the story just to talk about uh, Josephine Baker's fashion sense. Because as I looked at uh, pictures of her for the cover that I was going to do for this episode, I realized I really liked her style. So let's talk about it and why it's so cool. Now, her look just kind of like set her apart from other performers. And uh, because she got famous during the 1920s, during the Art Deco era, naturally her style was influenced by the time period and vice versa. The time period was influenced by her. Now... If you don't know what Art Deco is, you should probably Google it. But here's kind of my best uh, explanation. Sleek lines and geometric shapes are pretty much uh, the epitome of Art Deco. And uh, Josephine kind of acted as a muse for the movement. And everything from her clothing choices to her slick down egghead hairdo um, 
to her dresses that she paired with ropes of pearls. She had door knocker sized earrings that I've seen a couple of times. She had oversized cocktail rings. Uh, she always looked gram- glamorous, but she never looked overdone, which I think was a really good style choice, I'd say. I, I don't know. I'm not a fashion critic. Uh, and of course, no Josephine Baker-inspired look would be complete without an elaborate hair accessory. You can see tons of examples of her elaborate hair accessories. I think I saw a couple of, uh, pictures of her wearing a turban. Um, I'm absolutely obsessed with her style. I, I remember a few, when I was a really little kid, I really wanted to be a fashion designer when I grew up, but I realized I'm not good at sewing, (laughs) like at all. And I can't draw clothes very well, so uh, now I'm going to be a historian. <laughs> uh, also, uh, side note, Joe actually owned this uh, pet cheetah. Uh, I caught it. Why did I not write down its name? Anyway, it had a diamond collar, which is bougie as fuck, and I aspire to be that level of fancy. Alright, moving on from Joe's style, we're going to get a bit into the main event her bisexuality, that's what we're here to kind of talk about. Now, like I said before, I didn't know that Josephine Baker was a bisexual, and to be fair, she didn't really talk about it very much because, you know, time period. Uh, Joe had a couple of, of affairs with uh, many women, um, and like I said, she wasn't open about it, and she definitely developed some internalized homophobia which is never good. My, uh, for example, uh, my grandmother, unlike, uh, many, many other grandmothers out there, my grandma is bisexual, and, uh, she was born in 1950, and she was a teenager throughout the 60s. Now, as much as the 60s is the, uh, decade of love, um, my grandma probably would have gotten stoned to death if people had found out that she liked women as much as she liked men. And as my grandma had, has grown up, um, she's kind of developed a little bit of internalized homophobia, which I get. Like, her and her partner have been together, oh god, I think since my mom was like a teenager at least. And, um, I've never seen them kiss in public before, like, never, like, they're terrified to do it, like, all the time. So I can understand how that happened. Now, one of uh, Joe's most significant affairs was with the great painter Frida Kahlo. Now, you probably know who she is, and I do actually plan on covering her this month. So I'm not going to go into too much detail about Frida, because she's going to get her own episode, hopefully, uh, this month. Now... I can't really tell you much about the relationship, but I'm going to try because it only got confirmed like a couple of years ago that they even had an affair. So there's not very much information. I think there's only like one photo of them meeting like ever. Now, Joe and Frida probably would have met in 1939, just before World War II started, like early 1939, because the war started in September with uh, Hitler invading Poland. Now, at the time, Joe was actually married to her third husband, uh, Jean Lyon. Uh, which was also how she gained French citizenship, like I talked about. 
now, Joe actually had had many affairs with women before meeting Frida, like this wasn't her first rodeo, and uh, Joe's son actually records a few of them. Here are the ones he mentioned by name, and I'm going to talk about them. So one of her first affairs was, was with this lady named Clara Smith. She was an American classic female blues singers, singer, and uh, before Josephine actually met Clara, uh, Josephine actually went by Frida Baker. Like, that was her, like, name. But Smith convinced uh, Joe to use Josephine Baker as her stage name, which ended up being really good for her. Because who wants to go see a performer named Frida Baker? Um, Another affair after that was with this uh, lady named Evelyn Shepard, then a lady named Bessie Allison, and uh, Mildred Smallwood, all these Women were African-American and were some other performers that Joe met while she was performing. Uh, there was another lady named A- sorry, Ada, and her nickname was Bricktop for some reason. Uh, <laughs> she was also a dancer and singer and a chorus girl, and she was a self-described saloon keeper? Which, does that mean a madame? Did she run a brothel? Now that I'm thinking about it, she totally might have... Uh, and one of the last affairs that, uh, Joe's son mentions was with Colette, a French novelist and performer. Apparently she was a very controversial figure throughout her life, and Colette absolutely flaunted her lesbian affairs, which is big lesbian energy, and we love that. Um, okay, so, like I said, there's not much information on their relationship. Now, Frida was in Paris in 1939 for an exhibition showing her art, and I don't know if she was still with her husband at the time. I can't remember if they were, like, separated, or they were going through a nasty bout, uh, or if they were still together, and at some point, the two women started an affair. And then, uh, I think it only lasted, like, a month or two, and then Frida returned to Mexico. But, uh, while I can't tell you anything about the relationship, uh, they actually had a lot of more things in common than I would have, uh, thought it. So, both of them were absolutely extremely talented. I mean, Frida was a self-taught painter, and Josephine had taught herself how to dance. Um, both actually suffered multiple miscarriages. I believe Frida had at least, uh, two or three, and, uh, Josephine had had a couple up until this point, I believe, uh, Frida's actual portrayal of her unjo- unborn child in uh, painting, she did that a lot. I believe she painted a couple of paintings of her unborn child. Actually, Josephine later would adopt 12 children. I'm going to discuss that later when I get to her and her kids. Uh, both women uh, put their lives at risk with political roles. Frida, by allowing uh, Trotsky to live at her home during his asyl- asylum, and Josephine by becoming a spy for France, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And uh, both had great pride in their self-sufficiency. Uh, Frida often insisted on having separate living quarters from her husband, Diego, and not accepting money from him. And Josephine never was never afraid to leave abusive situations or sour relationships. Now, it was really interesting to learn about this relationship. And it's so cool that such influential women actually, like... We're in a relationship together. It's just really cool. Um, I hope you guys like learning about that. It was very interesting. I'm sorry. That was my best attempt at the James Bond theme song. I haven't watched uh, one of those movies in a while, so that was probably off. Now, speaking of spies, Josephine was a spy, <laughs> like I said before. Now, 
1939, a little thing called World War II broke out. You may have heard of it. Now, uh, Paris, where Joe lived, was uh, becoming filled with refugees fleeing the Germans because Nazis. Uh, and every night after Joe's uh, shows, she would go to a nearby homeless shelter on uh, Rue de Chevrolet. Chev- it looks like it says Chevrolet, but I don't think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, she went to that homeless shelter to uh, make beds. She'd bathe old people and she'd comfort new arrivals, which is really sweet. But uh, it was the last straw when the Nazis occupied Paris in uh, the summer of 1940. And... Uh, you you don't invade Paris and Josephine Baker's watch, so she decided to uh, become a spy for the French Resistance. Now, the French Resistance um, was one of the... It was kind of like an army. It was one of the few uh, places that were uh, recruiting women for espionage because, you know, back then, who would suspect a woman of being a spy, right? So that's why they would have uh, recruited her. Now, uh... <laughs> I found this interesting uh, quote about why uh, Josephine would have even wanted to become a spy. She said, France made me who I am, the Parisians gave me their hearts, and I am ready to give them my life, which is very patriotic for her. Now, uh, Joe's performances with being an entertainer would have provided her with the absolute perfect excuse of traveling across Europe, and as a glamorous star, she was, up, she was uh, invited to embassy parties wherever she went. And at these parties, Joe would eavesdrop, flirt with flirt with officers to gather information about German troop locations, airfields, uh, from high-ranking Italian, Japanese, and Nazi officials. Uh, fellow secret agent uh, Jacques uh, Apti uh, would masquerade as her assistant, and he recorded the information in invisible ink on her sheet music. Uh, Baker, sorry, Joe would, uh, pin important photos to her underwear, and she counted on her fame to avoid strip searches. Um, in 1941, uh, Joe and her entourage, uh, traveled to the French colonies in, uh, North Africa, which I think is, uh, why was I gonna say Papua New Guinea? That's not in Africa. God damn it. Uh, it's in North Africa. Um, so, the official reason for the, uh, the trip was for health, and apparently she was recovering from pneumonia, uh, but Baker was actually there to establish a permanent liaison and transmission center with British intelligence in Casablanca, which, that sounds very James Bondy. Um, and she was also there to help set up a network making, uh, Spanish Moroccan passports available to European Jews in order to help them escape to South America. And, uh, while also being a spy, uh, Joe also entertained French, British, and American troops to help boost their morale, and she refused payment for her, for her performances. Her hope was that when soldiers applaud me, I like to believe they will never acquire hatred for color because of the cheer I have brought them. Um, <laughs> I had this funny thought when I was writing this part of my script. Uh, her... <laughs> doing these, like, little performances to, like, boost morale. Kind of reminds me of, you know, in the first Captain America movie where uh, Steve Rogers does all those little performances <laughs> for the troops. That's what it kind of reminds me, except she's a girl, so they probably would have paid attention to her. Uh, now, after the war, uh, Josephine married her final husband in uh, 1947. And his name was uh, Joe Billion. 
uh, who was a French composer, and all I've got to say about this guy is he was probably her best marriage out of all the ones she'd had so far, and it was her longest, it was her longest lasting marriage. Uh, they were married for a grand total of 14 years, but I believe they, like, separated at the, like, the 10-year mark, but, like, this is the best one she'd, uh, had so far. Now, uh, after the war, Josephine became, like, kind of, like, a different person. She actually got more famous, uh, because the stories of her heroic efforts during the war began to spread to the general public. Now, in 1951, she was invited back to the United States for a tour, and post-World War II America had still not changed their attitudes toward her. She couldn't even walk into certain hotels or order a cup of coffee simply because she was black. She found this absolutely ridiculous and set out to make some change. Now, while she was on this tour, she made sure it had written into her her contracts that the theater she played at had to let any ticket holder in regardless of their skin color. Now, segregation wasn't just limited to the American South. (coughs) Sorry, cough. It wasn't just in the American South that she was having this problem. It was everywhere. Uh, When she arrived in New York City with her husband, uh, they refused reservations at no less than 36 hotels because she was African American. Now, reminder, um, Joe's husband, also Joe, uh, was a white dude. Uh, so that probably helped her just a little bit. And this experience for her being refused, uh, service, uh, with her husband was repeated across the country, including in Las Vegas, where even immensely popular stars like Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, were barred from staying at the Beth Hotel simply because they were black, even though they were super, um, big stars. I read this one story about Ella Fitzgerald, about how there was this club that wouldn't book her, and Marilyn Monroe uh, said that she'd sit front row every night at uh, that club if they let Ella Fitzgerald play. And apparently Ella Fitzgerald and Marilyn Monroe were really good friends. I hope I get to do an episode on Ella Fitzgerald. That'd be interesting. Uh, one other time, uh, also in Vegas, uh... The, there was this club called El Rancho. Uh, they refused to let black ticket holders into uh, Joe's concert, and she refused to re- perform. She sat down on the stage, kind of like with her arms crossed and getting all huffy, until the owners eventually realized that they weren't going to win this one, and uh, they let them all in. Now, uh, <laughs> Joe's actually uh, very famously uh, credited with helping the process of desegregating Vegas casinos which is a great accomplishment for her. Now, uh, Joe's American tour ended with a parade in front of 100,000 people in Harlem. Uh, It was actually a celebration to honor her new title from uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, which I believe is still a organization that is still uh, around today. She uh, won the award of uh, Woman of the Year. Um, she continued to do tours and speak out against racial injustice, uh, which didn't sit well with some people. And by some people, I mean the goddamn FBI (laughs) opened up a file against her because of her reportedly 
anti-United States sentiments and her fight for racial equality. Now, you can't see it, but I'm putting quotes above anti-United States sentiments. And remember at the start when I told you that (laughs) Josephine's life really has a lot to do with what we're going through right now? Well, uh, (laughs) um... I think Josephine and the protesters really relate to this because, you know, I guess when you fight for racial injustice, racial equality, you're uh, anti-United States, too. They kept this file open on her for 15 years until she was 60. They recorded her actions. They called her a Communist Party apologist uh, that probably wasn't helped with the fact that she partied with the Castro brothers in Cuba, which to be honest, looked a little bit sus, so, yeah, I kind of get why they might have thought that, but, eh, uh, you have to remember, this was really bad for, because being thought of a communist in the United States was a very serious crime, and if anyone had tried to take legal action against her, like, set up a kangaroo court, or some shit, and gotten her convicted, she could have gone to jail for a really long time, so, um, I'm glad that she, uh, that didn't happen to her. Um, some more of her activism. In 1963, she actually spoke at the March on Washington. Joe was the only official female speaker there. Uh, while she was there, she wore her free French uniform emblazoned with her medal of the Liege d'Honneur. Uh, she introduced the Negro Women for Civil Rights. Uh, Rosa Parks and Daisy Bates were among those she acknowledged. I believe, uh, Queen's Podcast has an episode that's live right now about Daisy Bates. If you, you guys should go listen to that. Um, and, uh, Rosa Park and Daisy Bates also gave brief speeches. Uh, not everyone involved wanted Joe present at the march. Some thought her time overseas had made her a woman of France, uh, and a person who was disconnected from civil rights issues going on in America, which I don't think is fair. Um, in her speech, uh, one of the things Joe notably said, and I love this quote, uh, she said, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth and then look out, because when Josephine opens her mouth, and they're going to hear it all over the world. Damn, that's badass. Now, after the March on Washington, which we know was the... <laughs> where the... I Have a Dream speech was done by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, they were actually very good friends, and after King's, uh, Dr. King's assassination, his widow, uh, Coretta Scott King, actually approached Joe uh, in the Netherlands to ask if she would actually take uh, Dr. King's place as the leader of the civil rights movement. Uh, Joe thought about it for quite a while, but she ended up declining, saying her children were too young to lose their mother, which I think was a a good decision for her. All right, so uh, speaking of Joe's children, I want to talk about them because she had a very interesting uh, family, to say the least. Now, as Joe aged, she couldn't really keep up her stage act as much as she used to. She was getting into her mid to late 40s, and to be honest, uh, the world had pretty much moved on from wanting to watch watch a black woman dance topless. Her act wasn't scandalous anymore. I mean, it was the 60s, for God's sakes. Uh, So she started to focus on the civil rights movement, like I talked about. Now, one of her and her husband's goals was to actually adopt some children. Now, Joe had had to 
had tried to have her own biological children, but like I said before, she had miscarriages. And now for the 1950s, she did something absolutely shocking. She adopted 12 kids, that's right, 12 kids from all parts of the world of all different races. Now, she kind of did this to prove that all races could live in harmony. It was more of a, um, something she did to prove a point rather than the fact that she want, actually wanted kids. Now, uh, of the 12 kids, she adopted two girls and 10 boys. Now, the girls were named Marion and Stalina, and the boys were Janot, Akio, Louis, Jerry, uh, Jean-Claude, who is the son I've been uh, talking about. He's actually a great historian for his mother and where I actually got a lot of uh, information about her. And I read an e-book of the book he wrote about his mother. Uh, then there was Noel, Moise, Brehan, Kofi, and Mara. Uh, she settled her very, very large family at a castle in France called Chateau du Desmolines. Um, and she transformed this very gorgeous state. It's a gorgeous castle. I'd love to live there. Uh, basically, she p- made it a theme park. And the main attraction was her so-called family of the future. Now, she called her family the Rainbow Tribe <laughs> because they were all different colors. Um, and basically what she did is she had people to come and pay to see them. Uh, the reason she, uh, did this because she was actually having some money problems, so charging admission, uh, actually, uh, helped her out a bit. And basically, uh, people would come and watch the children sing and play and, you know, work in harmony, even though they were all different races. Now... This worked great for her, but the problem is raising kids as stage props isn't exactly always going to work out because they're human beings. Now, as the kids grew over, they started to not like their very public life. And most of the public considered them a very happy family, but that really wasn't the case. The problem was... Uh, Joe wasn't really a mother to them like she should have been. She made money off of them, and that was the only reason she really had them in the first place, which is really bad, and I don't really admire this part of her life that she used these kids as a political statement rather than actually wanting to be a mother to them. Now, uh, as uh, Joe's finances crumbled and her husband's and her husband, the children's adopted father, got divorced, uh, she moved her and her rainbow tribe to Monaco to live in a very less grand home paid for by uh, Joe's actually friend and patron, Princess Grace of Monaco. Now, uh, while the kids were here, uh, they started entering their teenage years, uh, and in some cases they were having child star syndrome. Uh, they started to resist uh, Joseph authority and started being rebellious teenagers uh because they were so old no one wanted to watch them play anymore that was why they lost the castle i mean who wants to watch teenagers play uh joe kind of looked for ways to farm the children out to others she kind of rehomed some of them a la that youtuber lady who rehomed her autistic son because he was autistic which is horrible um, some of the kids went to live with their adopted father. Uh, they all actually had his last name, so they liked him a lot. Some went to boarding schools. Um, Joe sp- sent a small group, including uh, Marianne, uh, 
to live with a super fan of Josephine's in the UK, which is weird. And uh, one of the saddest and most puzzling of her rehome efforts uh, was that when she found out her son, Jerry, who was adopted from Finland, she was gay, who was gay, uh, she chastised him in front of his siblings before sending him away to live with uh, his adopted father in Buenos Aires, which... If you remember, I told you that uh, Josephine uh, developed a lot of internalized homophobia, uh, so it's unfortunate that she chastised her her son, who she should love, uh, for being gay because of the time period. Now, despite all this, while most of the kids, who I believe they're all still alive uh, these days, they're not really fond of how they grew up. But they never talk bad about their mother. Like, I've seen a lot of stuff about them, and they never talk bad about their mother. I don't know if they're just, like, afraid to, like, talk shit about her, even though she's dead. Uh, or if they, like, actually, like, genuinely cared for her and don't want to spit on her grave or anything. Um, yeah. Alright, so, <laughs> moving on from that, that's not my favorite part of, uh, researching Josephine. I was very unfortunate. To find that she treated her children that way. Anyway, uh, we're getting into Joe's later life. Now, into the 70s, as her rainbow tribe fell apart and she lost her castle, she actually did this weird thing. She converted to Roman Catholicism for some reason, and she became, like, a deeply devoted religious person. Uh, she did a few performances every once in a while. It wasn't very frequent, um... But in 1975, she actually did a performance to celebrate her 50 years in show business. Now, this venue was packed. It was a fucking big deal, guys. They actually had to bring fold-out chairs just to accommodate all the people that came in. Uh, Some of the people in the audience for the first night included uh, Mick Jagger and Diana Ross, which is cool. Uh, That that, uh, performance was a huge success. Now, four days later... Unfortunately, Joe was found lying peacefully in her bed, surrounded by newspapers with glowing reviews of her performance. Uh, she was in a coma from a cerebral cerebral hemorrhage, which I think is like a brain bleeding thing. I'm not sure. Uh, she was rushed to the hospital where, unfortunately, she passed away on April 12th, 1975 in Monaco. Now, for her funeral, she had a full Roman Catholic funeral, and she's actually the I believe up until that point, she was the only American-born woman to receive full French military honors at her funeral. After her funeral procession, she was buried in Monaco. Now, I just want to talk about her legacy now that we've uh, reached the end of her life. Joe's legacy she really reaches right into today. Like I said, a lot of stuff in her life is very reminiscent of the shit we're going through right now. Uh, her breakthrough into the entertainment business is awesome, her heroism during the Second World War is commendable, and her activism during the Civil Rights Movement makes me admire her very much, and she never let race define her, and that makes her absolutely fabulously awesome. Um, I love her for just being a badass bitch in general. Uh, some of the stuff that has been named after her, uh, she was inducted into the St. Louis Hall of Fame, and there's a couple streets in Paris named after her. There's also a whack statue of her at the Museum for Black History, I believe in... Did I say St. Louis? Yeah. Uh, her castle these days is actually a tourist attraction. Uh, and I'd, I'd actually love to go see it um, if I ever go to France. Uh, it's really cool. 
Um, cheers to Josephine Baker, our first LGBT lady for Pride Month. Cheers, guys. Alright, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, if there's a certain thing that you want to hear, just, like, hit me up on uh, Twitter at Long May She Rain 2. Uh, the N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2, just so you know that. Um, thanks for listening, guys. Bye!